Good morning, friends. Good morning. I'm Chaplain Brian Martin Burkholder, and I'm simply opening this space, this convocation, um, with a, a, a lighting of this lamp, uh, inviting us uh, for prayerful awareness. The families and victims and friends of those impacted by the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria and the shooting shootings in uh, Michigan State University, and I'll bet you could think of several other tragedies. Um, let's open with this prayerful awareness. God have mercy. Be with those impacted and also with us, with anyone who is experiencing secondary trauma associated with these traumas. Amen. I'll follow up with uh, an email later today um, with some suggestions as to how to contribute um, some of our monetary gifts or in other ways to make a difference, especially in the situation of the earthquake. Um, this convocation is uh, uh, it's really special um, to me. Uh, we've been working on it for a little while, Celeste Thomas and I, and she'll introduce it more fully. I would like to encourage you to put phones away, put laptops away, computers, tablets away, to honor our time together, to honor our speakers, the Black Student Alliance and others um, for these 50 minutes. Celeste. Good morning, EMU. Good morning, thank you. I am Celeste Thomas, the Director of Multicultural Student Services and advisor to the Black Student Alliance. We welcome you to this space to celebrate the numerous contributions of the black giants whose shoulders we stand upon today. We recognize without those who paved the way for us that we would not be able to assemble here today. We pay homage to the ancestors who endured being beaten, tortured, raped, and murdered in the slave castles, the Middle Passage, and the numerous plantations that they were brought to in shackles. We have also endured through sharecropping, Jim Crow, the civil rights movement, lynchings, and murders at the hands of the police. Despite these adversities, still we rise. We are a resilient people who are here to stay. Our opening music this morning was a testament to our staying power. 50 years ago, rap music was created and it was looked upon as a lesser genre of music but it has become more than music. It is culture, fashion, 
and a movement unto itself. I am black history. This morning, please join me with our guest speaker, George Johnson, former standout athlete and 2011 alumnus of EMU and now author. George Johnson returns to EMU to share his triumphant story of Double Crossed. Johnson speaks on his journey leading up to, during, and life after his tenure as a royal. A talkback will follow the convocation from 11 to 11.30 here in the auditorium, so we ask if you're staying for the talkback to please move up to the front center pews. And we ask that you please, Brian has asked, but please keep your electronic devices um, off during this 50-minute period of time. Thank you. And I am black history. Next, we will have Denisha George and Roy Al coming to the stage. Good morning, EMU. Good morning. I am Denisha. I am part of BSA Social Committee and also Secretary. And today I'll be reading to you all the History Upon Black History Month. Black History Month is an annual celebration of achievements by African Americans in a time for recognizing their central role in U.S. history. African American History Month was also known as the event that was found of Negro History Week. The brainchild of this is no other than the great historian Carter G. Wilson, followed by other well-known African Americans. Since 1976, every U.S. president has officially called the month of February Black History Month. Other countries around the world, including Canada, the United Kingdom, has also devoted a month to celebrate the goodness of black history. I am black history. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rielle. I am a member of BSA, and I'm a first year. I'm going to be reading Eco Trippin' by Nikki Giovanni from 1943. I was born in the cargo. I walked in the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every hundred years falls. In, into the center, giving divine perfect light, I am bad. I sat on the throne, drinking nectar with Allah. I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to cool my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefithi. The tears from my birth plains created the Nile. I am a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burnt out the Sahara Desert with a packet of goat meat and change of clothes. I crossed it in two hours. I am a gazelle so swift, so swift you can't catch me. For a birthday present when he was three, I gave my son Annabelle an elephant. He gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My son Noah, my strength flows ever on. My son Noah built a new ark and stood proudly at the noon so he sailed on a soft summer day. I turned myself into myself and was Jesus. Man enthroned my loving name, all praises, all praises. I am the one who would save. I sold diamonds in my backyard. My bowels deliver uranium. The fillings from my fingernails are my precious jewels on a trip north. I caught a cold and blew my nose, giving oil to the, to the Arab 
world, I am so hip, even my errors are correct. I sailed west to reach east and how to round off the earth as I went. The hair from my head thinned and gold was laid. Across three continents, I am so perfect, so divine, so internal, and so real, I cannot be comprehend except by my permission. I mean, I can fly like a bird in the sky. I am black history. Hi, my name is Nardos Haile, and I'm president of BSA. Um, I will be introducing our guest speaker for today. George Johnson, 2011 graduate of Eastern Mennonite University, is a self-published author, serial entrepreneur, mental health advocate, and father. Born and raised in Northside, Richmond, Virginia, George developed a strong passion for basketball and entrepreneurship at a young age. Because of his basketball talents, George was recruited to play at EMU. As point guard, he helped lead the 2010 Royals to the NCAA Division III Elite Eight Tournament. Now residing in Houston, Texas, George operates multiple mental health outpatient facilities serving low-income communities through Texas and Virginia, along with running other successful businesses. He's endured a number of life-changing experiences, which led him to write Double Crossed, his mem memoir detailing these challenges and the mental effects of it all. I am Black History. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, I wanna be transparent with, uh, with you guys. I was, I got here today, and I grad, like she said, I graduated in 2011. I have never thought that I would envision <laughs> the the black uh, uh, culture uh, be received here at EMU like that. Um, it's, and it's funny because I still look at me as being young, but when I think about it, I graduated in 2011, and most of you, most of you students was eight, nine, ten years years old, and just worry about recess. And so it makes me like, man, maybe I'm getting old. But <clears throat> like I say, I, I apologize because I'm kind of sitting here and I'm sitting in the chapel and. We're watching, you know, Black History, and, we, and we're speaking about him as being a champion. And I never, for my four years here, felt that I could articulate or, or, or speak from the the Black side of me. I always felt welcome here, and I never felt outcast. But I never felt that I could speak from the perspective of where I'm from and, and how I grew up and, and the traumas I experienced. Because just to be transparent. It, it wouldn't relate. It, it would follow, it would not necessarily follow deaf ears, but my story didn't look like everybody else's. Um, and so I say a lot to say, I appreciate that introduction. I'm from Richmond, Virginia. Anybody else in here from Richmond, Virginia? Okay, there we go right there. We got one in the back. Um, my upbringing, I was, uh, I grew up in the north side of Richmond, inner city. Every dynamic that comes with being in the inner city. Uh, my brother sold drugs, all my friends, uh, did the same thing. Um, I grew up in a time period where Richmond was the murder capital of the nation. Um, that was uh, 90s. So all those dynamics that you can think of or, or sell on TV, that's where I grew up um, as, um, in. And, but basketball was this tool that was allowing me to 
leave the city. I, I played AAU. I traveled around the United States. And so that's what, that's what allowed me to, at, when school was over, I had practice. When the weekend came, we were traveling. And so that kind of kept me out of a lot of stuff. But that didn't mean my friends and my peers and my family weren't dealing with all the things that came with coming, you know, living in Richmond, Virginia. Um, I grew up, I'm a boy, I'm a, I'm a baby boy of five. And so my oldest brother was a phenom per se. He was 10 years older than me. Uh, we lived in the same household. And my whole life just growing up, I wanted to be him. I mean, he was, think about growing up as a, a younger boy and your brother is the best basketball player in the state of Virginia. I, could, I couldn't do no wrong. Everywhere I went, it, it was, I was his little brother. Um, and, and most definitely as I started to mature, I got a lot of passes. I got to go a lot of places. I got access to a lot of stuff because this was my big brother. And so simultaneously with me playing basketball, I was always had a mindset of an entrepreneur. Um, I tell a story uh, in my book where in sixth grade, I took a home ec class. And for the most part, all the boys in the school took home ec because all the girls were going to be there and we was going to cook. <laughs> and so, but for some odd reason, one of our assignments was to sew. And uh, nobody, none of my friends, none of my homeboys wanted to sew. They were like, oh, let me just get this done. But I don't know if you guys remember, um, it, was a, it was a fad when uh, wearing your favorite team patches on your clothes. It would be on your jackets, your shirts, your jeans. Um, and I figured out that, hey, if I learn how to use this sewing machine and I figure out where to get these patches, I could start my own little business. And that's what I did. And so it was kind of awkward being in inner city Richmond and this little guy have a sewing machine, but that's what I was doing. And um, I had started this, and this was my beginning stages of just being an entrepreneur. But simultaneously, basketball was my life. Um, I started getting older. I started uh, developing in my basketball game, and I started to become real good. And now I was coming up on, you know, being a high school uh, senior, junior, and uh, clearly I wasn't the biggest guy, right? So <laughs> I, w I, w I needed to get some additional time to develop and get a little bit bigger. And so I actually attended, and I was able to get a scholarship to go to the Miller School in Albemarle. Maybe anybody from Charlottesville, Albemarle area? Okay. So it was a prep school, which is right down the road, and uh, that's where my skills kind of became um, very good, and I was able to come here. I wasn't going to come here. I looked at EMU like, who? I never heard of EMU. I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and it's Mennonites. What? I don't even know what that is. And so I... Uh, Kirby Dean, who is the coach prior to Melvin, who's the head coach now, he came and had lunch with me, and he was like, look, son, I know you never heard of EMU, but you could come there and uh, you could be the man. And uh, I had other big schools to go to, and I actually was ducking Coach Dean, and, and um, the story goes is I ended up coming here. And my, my perception of me coming to EMU was that I was going to get here, average 50 points a game, be the first guy to leave straight out of uh, EMU, go to the NBA. <laughs> And uh, it, didn't, it didn't go like that. It didn't, it didn't go like that. And so uh, my freshman year, we, we, we sucked. We was terrible. Uh, we, we won like five or six games, and um, it hurt me. I had never lost that much, and it was affecting me in every, in every kind of way. Um, I had a pivotal moment where I tell it where uh, my sophomore year, now we're going into my sophomore year, uh, I'm on campus. I was kind of rough around the edges. I didn't fit in. 
Um, but I, I always felt love, but I knew that my window of opportunity here was a little bit smaller because just where I was from and just how I carried myself. Uh, my first big mistake here was, uh, and it, it worked out um, okay, but I uh, had a daughter and it was with a Mennonite. <laughs> so um, that was, it scared me to death. I, I, all I could think about was the trauma of what I saw prior to me moving, I'm coming here to um, Harrisonburg, is just generational curses of just people having children out of wedlock and can't support their kids and welfare and Medicaid and all the drama that you see on TV, seeing that in real life. And so I had a moment where I thought I was gonna have to go back home and work at Phil Lamar's uh, or, or be a postman. And um, that was my reality. A lot of people that my peers didn't, couldn't understand, but that's what I was faced with. But I didn't feel that I could share that here until today. Um, my daughter, who's now 13, she's like one of my best friends. That relationship with her mother is great, um, and it worked out good. But that was my first strike here. And to be truthfully honest, I never shared this component, but I was actually, uh, I had to go before a board. I was about to be kicked out of EMU because of me having a daughter. And so um, if it wasn't for uh, uh, Mr. King, the AD at that time, and, and Kirby Dean uh, speaking on my behalf, I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have finished my uh, college career here. And so I got that, that next opportunity and I, I felt blessed with that opportunity and I knew that I couldn't really make no mistakes here because I had to honor the rules and regulations here at MU. We went on that year, that's my sophomore year, to uh, turn things around and I really just knew that I really couldn't, I needed to demonstrate myself just how I conducted myself and I knew that my hard work would show up in some kind of way. Well, lo and behold, we was able to turn the program around here in basketball. And we speak about this amazing year when we went to the Elite Eight. And I don't want to turn it into what, uh, you know, a basketball story, but what that, what that did for me, my confidence, and what it showed me what hard work what could do is something that I carry throughout my life now. And so that pivotal moment of where I turned on this switch of just this determination to just work on my game, be in the gym, give up alcohol, give up all these things to sacrifice to do a big, big thing with a team was something that I saw, I really, it really happened. And we have people here that was here during, the, during those moments and it was amazing. Like it went from me about to be getting kicked out of MU to me on the floaty right around downtown. <laughs> so it was a surreal moment. Um, I was good enough at the end of my career to get an agent and to have the opportunity to go play professionally across seas, which growing up, if you play ball, especially where I'm from, that's all you want. The opportunity to get a paycheck to play basketball. Who, who, who wouldn't want that opportunity? So I signed uh, after, my, after this basketball season, my senior year, had an agent. I was geared up to go play in Slovakia. I don't even know where that's at, but... Um, they was gonna pay me a dollar to pay, play basketball. My best friend at the time played at basketball at Firm. He's from Richmond as well. He had graduated, we had went home. We we're around all these friends that we grew up with. We are celebrating, it's a great time. We leave the club that night. Me and one friend, we left the group. He was going to see a girl. I'm like, I'm gonna walk with you. We go down a dark alley. Uh, five guys run down on my friend with a gun um, and attempt to rob him. Me, it's just a rule of thumb where I'm from and just the, the code that we was following was like, you're not gonna leave your, your, your friend uh, alone. I ran down to help him. 
my friend panicked, ran the other way, and now I'm faced with the situation that was for him. Uh, I was fighting for my life. I fought these five guys. I knew I had to make a run for it, and I was able to run out that situation without getting shot. And so I immediately got back here to Harrisonburg. No one knew. I didn't feel like I could share that with anybody here. School was out at this time. We had just graduated. And uh, Mike and uh, Carlene was still in the uh, training room doing things, kind of wrapping up for the year. I came in because I was preparing now to go play cross seas, to work out and train. And my thumb was sore. And me just being a tough guy and uh, that I try to be, I was trying to work out by myself, just putting tape on my thumb. And I went, I was like, I was, Mike, can you check my thumb out? And him knowing that I'm a tough guy, he tried to just like, Yo, you, you sure you good? Anything happened? I was like, nah, I just kind of bumped it, fell. And he immediately told me I had to go to UVA to get it looked at. I drive down to UVA, uh, meet this guy, he do an x-ray, uh, x-ray, he gave me, he numbed my thumb, and he literally was taking my thumb and touching my, my forearm. And uh, I don't feel it, but I'm seeing it, and I'm like, that ain't, that's not supposed to do that. And uh, the doctor knew, you know, who I were, who I was. Mike had told him, and the doctor told me right then and there that, you're not gonna be able to go, you know, cross seas. You're gonna have to have surgery. Your 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 thumb ligament is torn totally. And so, from that incident, from the night before of that that fight and that brawl for my life, my dreams that I had worked for my whole life was were, were, was gone away. And so mentally at that time, I w I didn't really know me. I didn't really know how to cope with those things like that. And so, I kind of just took the 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 uh, the, bra the Bravo approach of oh, I'm good. We just gonna figure it out. Um, I didn't share that story, I, I kinda just honed that in. My brother that I spoke about, there was the phenom at the beginning of my story. He had now, you know, finished his career, he went and played cross seas, he now was working in the mental health field in DC. Him being a big brother at that time, he was like, dang little bro, like that happened to you, you can come here and, and you know, start working. I immediately transitioned and, and now I was, you know, headed to DC to live with him. Uh, this, the, the brother that was always my hero and working in the mental health field. Didn't have a clue what the mental health field was, but I knew that I had to start getting some money now and I didn't want to go back to my mama house. So I started working with my brother and me just having this entrepreneurial mindset, I took it upon myself to learn the industry from A to Z. Who we, who we needed to hire, how many people, what credentials, how does the money work, how to do payroll, how to do all the different components that run this business. In the midst of me working and now living with my brother that I grew up wanting to be like, I started to figure out that my brother wasn't the same guy that I, I saw him as as a kid. And if you kind of can understand how if I'm two and your brother's 12, you don't really know the character or the morals or the principles of how you conduct himself because, hey, we're both kids. And if I'm five and he's 15, I don't really care about that. I just like that he, he's good at basketball. And it took for me to become a man and grow up here and, and learn my morals and principles here to now, now reconnect with my brother and we're living together, having a sharing space. And now I'm a man and he's a man and it's just, man, you, you're, not, you're not who I, I always saw you were. I saw who you were. And so our relationship just began, began falling apart uh, to the point of like fist fighting, to the point where just how he was living his life didn't align with mine. That relationship ended up just going, going away. Uh, I learned the whole industry and I saved up my, all my money to find a consultant to help me start my own mental health business. Cool, I did that. I ended up moving back from D.C. back to Richmond, had an opportunity to expand in Houston, Texas. And it was lit, I want to let y'all know. Like with this opportunity I had to go to, 
So <laughs> I was able to empower all my close friends, my younger cousin, um, put them in situations financially that they never could have foresaw. I moved to Houston, Texas. I brought one of my best friends from fifth, uh, from fifth grade with me. He moved to Houston with me and we are killing it. I'm making $80,000 a month. I retired my mother. Um, life couldn't get no better. In 15, 16, I got a phone call from an employee that worked along with me with my, at my brother's company in DC. And it was like my homegirl. She was like, yo, what's up, G? Like, what you been going? I'm like, I'm in Houston. It's great. It's sunny here. It's cold up there, ain't it? So <laughs> she was like, yeah, like, ha, ha, ha. But do you know what's going on with your brother? I'm like, nah, I, I don't know what's going on with my brother. Like, what's up? She went on to let me know that he was under federal investigation. Uh, he had been doing fraud. Um, he had been, you know, stealing money from the government using his business that I had all, we all learned how to operate this, in this space. And so you know, just to be transparent, I was, I was like, I, that's, that's, that's sad, that's crazy. I don't have nothing to do with that. And so that was the first conversation when I have heard of this, but I didn't really pay no attention to it. Maybe six months later, that friend that I told you moved along with me and a couple of different friends that were still in Richmond, they reached out to me and said, hey, I'm starting to get phone calls from the FBI. And I'm like, man, that's, that is sad, but okay. And uh, one of my friend that moved in Houston with me, uh, <laughs> we were in my office one day. And I'm, I'm, I'm gonna tell you guys the story because um, I feel comfortable. I was headed to go to Miami for the weekend, right? And so my friend, my friend was on the phone and he tapped me like, yo, and he put his phone on speakerphone, and it was the federal, it was the, it was the feds asking him, did they know about my whereabouts? Now, my friend being the type of friend he is, and he's a Richmond guy, he's telling the feds, like, nah, I don't even know who that is. I'm like, <laughs> so, so, I'm like, okay. Uh, so, that's when I knew that something was getting a little weird and, and, and fishy. Uh, another three months went by, and I remember going to an Astro, Astro game uh, in Houston, Texas, and I never had been to an Astro games before. My, um, we were taking some of our clients or our kids that was in my program to the game. And we pulled up in this parking lot, <laughs> and I remember getting a phone call, call, and I don't answer phone numbers that I don't know. But for some reason this day, it was like, answer this phone call. I answered it, and... Uh, I remember the, the investigator was like, hey, you know, you're George, yes. And that's the day he told me that uh, it's probably best I get an attorney and I could, because I was under a federal investigation. And so from that day on, it went on to be a four-year journey where my life kind of just ended up getting flipped upside down. Um, that phone conversation transitioned to them, they setting up a spoof meeting where I was supposed to bring my attorney and I was supposed to come in and kind of explain some things that they had confused. And I went, in the, I went into this interrogation room with my attorney, just totally confused. And basically that day, they basically told me I had 24 hours to take a plea for five, four to five years. And at the time I had an attorney, I had a little cheap attorney and the attorney was telling me, yeah, go ahead, do it, do it, do it. And I was like, what? I don't even know what's going on. I immediately had to fire him. I had to find another attorney. It cost me $60,000 just to introduce myself to the attorney. 
that was able to that attorney was able to allow me to slow down this whole process and make the federal government do their do their own um federal investigation. At that point, I'm now uh, back in Houston, going back and forth, flying from Richmond to Houston to interact with my attorney. Um, the federal government is going to my office in Houston. I lost all of my bank accounts. Wells Fargo called me and said, hey, you can come get all your money. Uh, anybody that I shared a bank account with lost their bank account. My credit score went from an 805 to a 450. So being an entrepreneur, <laughs> it kind of rocked my world. And I'm gonna try to wrap this up because we're on a time, um, time, uh, time, um, time. Three years went by of this interrogation and, and back and forth, and the, the feds had to go before a federal judge and say, Your Honor, we made a mistake. His brother lied to us. What people don't understand is that when the federal government come to you, you're not supposed to go against them. You're not supposed to. Uh, they don't like that, and you can become a target even if you do beat them. My attorney, it was a great day. I remember I, my, when this happened, I went and brought a new Corvette, a new Range Rover. This, this part of my life is over. Um, you know, I went through a, a period where, in the midst of that, where my mental health became a thing. I work out every day. I went to the gym one day, and every man in here probably understand lifting the bar on the bench press is kind of easy, right? Like, that's just what I do to warm up. This one day I went to the gym, <laughs> and uh, I couldn't lift the bar. And I was like, man, I'm tripping. Let me, man, I got to get this playlist together and I got to get a little snack or something. And I, and I did that. I went back to the bar and I literally still couldn't lift up the bar. And uh, I, I knew something was wrong. And I ended up getting, going to a doctor and, and realizing that I was depressed. And, and, and the toll of just, this mental toll of just my brother, I wanted to be like. And, 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 and what it was doing to my family, and it just was tearing it apart. But that day, like I referenced, came along where the federal government said they made a mistake. At this point, my brother is sentenced to four years in federal prison, um, and I was scotch-free. Six months later, though, I get a phone conversation from my attorney. I'm thinking that he was calling me to say, hey, what's going on? How you doing? Like, everything's great. He immediately told me, like, hey, you got a second? I was like, for you, I got everything. You saved my life. He was like, they, they have came back. I, I'm like, well, how? He was like, they got a tax case. I'm like, what? I just sent $100,000 back to them. How could I have a tax case? And he basically told me that they hit my oldest brother that I never had referenced in this whole story was my tax preparer my whole life. And what the federal government did was because I had beat them, they went to my oldest brother, which was my tax preparer, found out that he did over 200 incorrect tax documents leverage him and say, hey, they were going to lock him up for 10 years, take his business, or he was going to cooperate with them. And basically, they came up with a narrative that I withheld information from my oldest brother, which was my tax preparer, and they was going to pursue me for subscribing to a false tax document. And my brother came and got on the stand, which was a lie. My attorney told me at that moment, we could fight this again. It'll take another $300,000, and you can beat them again, but we're just going to come to a situation where we're just gonna do this all over again. It's gonna be a process. And so my attorney advised me to just take the plea and hopefully you don't go to federal prison. I had a lot of highly uh, well-known people speak on my behalf, some um, people from here. I was able to get a year on federal house arrest um, to, to take my plea and that's what I did. I was assigned to do 365 days in my house in uh, Houston, Texas and this, was, this whole story I just explained was a four-year time period, and, you know, 
at that point when you're fighting for your life, you're just going, you're going, you're going. When I was assigned to my uh, house uh, for the federal house arrest, it was the first moment I just had a moment where I just, whew, just let it all out and was like, man, what a journey. What had happened in the midst of this four years, I had two kids that now I had to take, be more responsible uh, for. Um, and mentally, I was just done. I had now had anxiety, I was depressed. The PTSD and, and my viewpoint of what family is and love was just totally gone. Christmas never felt the same before, and now I'm just at my bottom. Me having the knowledge that mental health, what it is, I never saw myself of needing help. Um, I just thought that I was the boss and I, I wasn't like these people that needed these services, but I found myself finding a therapist. And to bring it all home with Double Cross, Double Cross is just the, the con conglomerate of all of my therapy sessions of when I started doing therapy. I'm now on federal house arrest, I'm on Zoom with my therapy, and my first assignment was write down five things you wish you could sh share with your brother. And every week I had homework assignments to now check back in with my therapist, and I looked up in nine months and I had two notebooks of just stuff that I never shared. I never told my mom. I never even expressed to my father. All this trauma of just growing up in Richmond and my whole life and how my life just went here and here, I got to put it all on, my paper, on paper. And so at the end, which is now what Double Cross is, how I tell my story, is my therapy session. And now I go around, I just got back from London, just speaking on and trying to connect with people like me, have a journey like me, or don't have to be like me to just be more aware now what your mental health is. It doesn't matter how much money you got, where, where you're from, you're from Richmond, you're from Leola, PA. All these things are relevant and it's gonna come a point in your life where life could take you and rock your world and you could be at your lowest and mentally you don't know how to handle it. And so therapy is something I speak about now. And before I let y'all go, it's two quotes now that I always try to leave with people that I live by, it is stay the course. And when I say stay the course is that, man, life gonna come in. <laughs> if you're driving a car, a rock could come hit your window, somebody could swerve in front of you, but at the end of the day, you gotta stay on your course because if you do, you'll get to where you set out to, uh, to be. And, the, and the, last, the last quote, the last quote that I always leave with people is that, and I wanna make sure I say it right, as we wrap up, every season has an end. It was a moment in those four years where I, I just knew I was going to federal prison. And I, and, I, and I knew that the moment that I was in was just the worst that I'd ever been. But for some reason, I just always knew, just like winter gonna always turn into to, to spring and spring gonna turn into summer, the season gonna end and you gonna be able to come out on the back end. Just make sure you stay the course while you're in that season. And so at the end of the day, I just wanna give another, you know, I wanna say I appreciate EMU, let me come up here and speak. I mean, y'all really got to meet me. Y'all know that me speaking in front of EMU right now is crazy. Like my friends gonna be like, yo, that's crazy. Um, <laughs> um, in conclusion, I just wanna say thank you to EMU. Thank you for the, you know, the evolution of what's going on. Uh, I learned that Harrisonburg got a black mayor today. That is amazing. Um, and uh, thank you.
Thank you for sharing with us. If everyone wants to give a round, warm round of applause again for our speaker. All right, so following this, we're gonna have a Q&A. So if you guys wanna stay after for that, make sure to scan out and then come back to this middle section and we're gonna hold a space for that. Um, I'm gonna do some campus announcements. As you guys all know, it's Black History Month and BSA has a ton of events that we would love to see you at. Um, so for this week alone, um, tomorrow, Thursday, we're gonna have Soul Food Night and the CAF. Um, that starts at 5.15, so be sure to be there. Following that, we're gonna have a poetry slam. It's gonna be in Old Common Grounds, UC 177. And for the first time, as far as I know, BSA is gonna be stepping. So be sure to come down for that. Um, so that's this week. Um, next week, I don't know if any of you guys have heard, but BSA has been hosting a breakout gathering. So that's every other Wednesday. Next Wednesday is gonna be our second one. Um, and I believe we're gonna be talking about colorism. It's gonna be in New Common Grounds, UC. Um, so be sure to stop out for that. That's 10:10 next Wednesday. Then on Thursday next week is our town hall. Our topic is going to be race and space. Um, and this has been a topic we've been wanting to talk about for a while. So be sure to come out for that. It's gonna be a good time. Um, and then the following Sunday, uh, BSA is hosting a trip to DC. We're gonna be visiting the African American uh, History Museum and just going around DC and having a good time. So be sure to come out for those events um, and scan out before you come for the Q&A.